Well, good morning. Good morning. It's good to be here with you all. For those of you who might not know me, my name is Jonathan. I am the campus pastor here. It's a delight to be able to open the word with you. Well, as we get started, I want to ask you a question. When is the last time you told someone a story? Right? Now, now if you're, you're a parent here, you've got young kids, that's probably actually pretty recently, right? In fact, you probably told a story last night, and it was probably the same story you had told the night before and the night before and the night before that, and you're probably actually sick of telling those same stories. But, but outside of a bedtime story, when is the last time you told someone a story? I'm going to bet it was actually far more recently than you might think. Right? In fact, just think about the last time someone asked you, well, how was your day? How has your week been? You know, you probably responded with fine, good, busy, you know, whatever. But hopefully the conversation didn't stop right then. And you actually continued on. And most likely what you said next was a story. Right? You told a story about how your day had gone, what had taken place, you know, what someone said to you, what your boss came and told you to do, how you reacted, what happened next. You, you probably then told a story. See, I think actually far more of our communication actually takes place in stories than we might think. We tell stories to one another all the time, and the, and the reason is, is because we can actually connect with other people when we hear stories. Right? It moves beyond just sort of mere basic facts and actually tells us something about the other person. Right? It speaks beyond just what is told. It's, it's different than getting sort of an itinerary of what a person did throughout their day. is a whole different thing to hear the story of what happened. Right? We, we communicate through stories all the time. It's, it's why Hollywood makes so much money. Right? Hollywood made $40 billion literally telling stories. And we wanted to hear all of them. Right? Maybe not all of them. Some of them are worth hearing. Some of them might not be. I'll let you figure that one out. But the truth is, that's how we communicate. It, it goes beyond uh, facts and conveys heart and emotion. And so it really shouldn't surprise us then that when God speaks to us, he tells us a story. In fact, that's exactly what our Bible is. In fact, it is a story that God tells to us. In fact, if you know anything about what's all contained within our Bibles, there's all kinds of different genres, right? There's poetry, and there's prophecy, and there's letters, and there's teachings, and there's laws, and all these other things, yet 40% is just narrative. The vast portion of our Bible is just a story that God speaks to us. Now, now, if you grew up in the church, you probably have heard lots of these little Bible stories before, right? You've heard of Noah and the ark, or, or David and Goliath, or Daniel and the lion's den. And we tend to look at our Bible and we view it as this sort of collection, right? God's greatest hits. Here's all the fun things that, that God did throughout, you know, time. And here's the really cool ones. They made it into the Bible, right? But I think that's not how God intends us to read this book. In fact, God intends us to see it as one grand story from start to finish, from Genesis to Revelation. We're meant to see this as one story unfolding and God leading his people through it. In fact, that's really why we're doing this little mini-series, right? We're taking three weeks to walk through the entire Bible. It, it's, that's a big scope. It's a large span. 
And yet that's the goal, is to be able to see these grand story movements of Scripture. So if you were here with us last week, you, you probably heard Pastor Matt. He came and he began this story, and we looked at creation. Right? It's God in his creative work as he makes the world and everything in it and places Adam and Eve into this perfect garden paradise. And God actually places them there and he gives them a task. He gives them a purpose, a reason for existing. They are to go out and they are to create and fill this earth. They are to create culture and fill it with the glory of God. As his image bearers, they are to go out and put on display who God is and what he has made, and they get to enjoy all that God has created. It's this beautiful picture. It is perfect and pure as God himself is perfect and pure. But all of us know that it doesn't stay that way. Right, when we read the, the account of Genesis and God creating the world, we, we read this paradise, and then we look back at our world, and we say, something went horribly wrong. Right, we live in a world where there is sin and sickness and death and pain and hurt and all manner of other problems that go on. And so we look at this creation, at this very good, perfect creation, and we look at our world, and we say, something happened. And really, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about what happened in between. How did we go from paradise to where we are now? It's what we call the fall. So if you have a Bible with you, I'll invite you to open to Genesis chapter 3. All the way here on the left, third chapter in the Bible. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to look at what is called the curse of sin. We're going to look at what happened what changed in this world, but, but I want us to actually go beyond there. I want us to actually follow the story of fallen man. What happens after the fall, and what does that tell us about our need? So that's where we're going to go this morning. So let's start at the curse. Right, picking up the story from, from last week, God created Adam and Eve, placed them in this garden, and actually the text says that God used to walk with them. He would actually go on a little walk. They would walk through this garden that God had made, and Adam and Eve, they, they could actually ask God questions. They could just, as they're walking along, they could talk to God like you would talk to any person that you're standing beside, and they could ask the creator of all the world anything that could come to their mind. They had this beautiful, open relationship that they could just experience with God. In fact, God had created Adam and Eve and placed them into this marriage. And this was a, a perfect relationship, right? This was a marriage in which no one had ever fought. Now, I, I know sometimes we, we hear of couples and they're like, oh, we never fight, right? Like, no, that you're lying or you're just really repressing it down, right? One of the two. This was not like that. This was not a marriage where, where, where things seemed to be all right. This was a marriage where they had never even had a reason to have an argument. There had never been a miscommunication. There had never been a hurtful, snide word. There had never once been an argument or even a reason for it. It was perfect. And God placed them into this garden, and there he gave them one and only one rule. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
And so you can imagine there's one and only one way in which they would be tempted. And so in chapter 3, Satan enters the picture. He comes in as a snake, and he comes to Eve, and he whispers in Eve's ear, did God really say you couldn't eat of any of the fruit in here? And Eve responds, well, what are you talking about? No, of course we can eat of the fruit. We can eat of all of it. It's just this one tree. We should not touch it. And Satan answers back. And for the very first time, Eve hears a lie. And Satan says, oh, you're not going to die. You won't die if you eat of it. In fact, you will be like God, more like God than even he wants you to be. And for the very first time, Eve had to make a decision. What did she want more? Did she want to actually follow after what God had given to her, or did she want something more? And so Eve took the fruit. She gave some to Adam, who was sitting right beside her, saying nothing this whole time, and they ate. And immediately, something changed. Suddenly, both of them looked at each other, and they felt something they had never felt before. They were ashamed. They looked at each other, and they realized they were naked. They were exposed, and suddenly, that shame then turned into fear, and they were terrified. They, they had just sinned against God, this all-powerful, all-knowing, holy God. They had just rebelled against what he had said. And in terror and fear, they ran away and they tried to cover themselves up. God comes down to them. And he says, where are you? I like to imagine this is probably somewhat like a toddler who's trying to hide himself by putting a pillow over his head. Right? God is not fooled. God is not wondering where they are. He's asking them to come out. And God asks them, why did you eat the fruit? And immediately, something else now changes. Adam answers back. He says, God, it, it, was, it was the woman that you gave to me. Sin nature flared up immediately. He blamed everyone and everything else he could, and he points at Eve and says, it's her fault, and God, it's your fault for giving her to me. This perfect marriage that had never known an argument is now blaming each other. Eve turns and says, no, it was that serpent. It's his fault. It's certainly not mine. Sin had entered the world. What was perfect is now imperfect. What is pure is now defiled. And God told them there would be consequences to that action. And so verse 14, we now pick up the story. And we see what happens. The, the curse that comes as sin enters the world. So if you have a Bible, let me invite you to follow along with me. Verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent... Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." 
To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. To Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Jumping down to verse 23. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Sin comes with a heavy curse. Now, before we are going to continue on in this story, we really just need to pause here and understand what's going on. Because these verses actually now set the stage for really everything that's going to take place after this, right? God God gives them this curse that that comes in because of their sin, and it it kind of breaks down into three parts, right? It's to the serpent, to Eve, and to Adam. And so God says to this serpent that we know later on is Satan, And he curses Satan because of his involvement in bringing sin into the world. And he says, the offspring of this woman, there will be enmity between you two. And in fact, this offspring, he will crush your head, though you will bruise his heel. I hope this is a promise that many of us are familiar with. See, it's a promise here that even in the curse of sin, even as sin is now going to destroy everything, God has a promise. It's a promise that he's not done. That in fact, this isn't the end. It's not going to come to a complete end. Actually, there is hope yet to come. But sin would affect everything. To Eve, God says, childbearing will now come with pain. I think this is pretty obvious to any mother who has gone through labor. It is a painful process. But I think actually it's talking about even more. It's talking about bringing up children is also going to come with pain. It's the pain of having children. It's the pain of seeing children die, whether in the womb or out of it. It's the pain of watching children grow up and rebel and wander away. All of this childbearing process will come with pain. In fact, the mandate to, to be fruitful and multiply that God gave to Adam and Eve, now sin has affected even that. The mandate God created them for is going to be filled with this pain. To Eve, he also says that now the, the, uh, the relationship with her husband is going to be problematic. In fact, we've already seen that at action, right? Adam and Eve are now blaming one another for these problems, and they're pointing at each other and, and blaming them. The breakdown of marriages and relationships are the outworking of what the curse looks like. To Adam, God says, because you sinned, even the ground itself is cursed. 
before it would bring forth exactly what you had planted. There would be fruit and abundance. Now you're going to have thorns and thistles. Now your work is going to be filled with toil and sweat. You are going to exert yourself, and you will not get back what you ought. If you've ever had a day at work where you spend the entire day and it feels like you're just slamming your head against a brick wall, nothing is getting done. That's part of the curse of sin too. God created Adam, go forth in creation, create culture, and now yet that work is going to be toilsome. In fact, it will not bring forth what it ought. And then finally God says, Adam, just as you were taken out of the ground, you will be returned to it. Sin had brought death into the world. And as God is telling them all that their sin has cost, there's still yet something more. Verse 23 and 24, we find Adam and Eve are cast out of the Garden of Eden where before they had enjoyed this intimate presence with God, where they could simply walk and talk with Him, that would no longer be the case. They are cut off from that relationship with God. In fact, the text says God drives them out. They are thrown out of God's presence, and God would bar the way. He places an angel with a flaming sword so that no one would come back. In fact, that has severed our relationship with God. All of the effects, all of the toil, all of the pain point to that one curse. We can no longer be with God. And so in the opening pages of Scripture, what we find is, first of all, we find a God who is holy, who is perfect, who is pure, who is just, and then moments later we find out now humanity is cursed under sin and under judgment, and we have no way back. That's the opening scene of the Bible. It's a fairly bleak opening, to be sure, to start off with a glorious, wonderful creation, and three chapters in, it's been destroyed. But here's the good news. (laughs) The storyline of the Bible doesn't stop there. The Bible doesn't stop right there. In fact, it keeps going. But here's the thing. In one sense, it could stop, couldn't it? We know the rest of the story, right? We know next week we're going to talk about redemption and restoration. We know the story doesn't stop, but surely we could probably stop now, couldn't we? Sin has entered the world. Let's just now skip over to when Jesus shows up. That's a lot nicer. Why don't we just do that? I think we tend to do that kind of thing, but this morning what I'd like us to do is actually walk through this story of fallen man, because God has placed it here for a reason, and so let's start understanding what happens next. Well, in many ways, it unfolds exactly how you think it might. Adam and Eve have children And before chapter 4 comes to an end, what do we find? We find Cain has killed his brother Abel. Yeah, sin has infected them too, and childbearing has come with pain. And in fact, as we continue on in the story, we see actually the cycle of sin is growing greater and greater throughout this time. 
While Cain kills his brother and feels this remorse for it, we come to his descendant Lamech who kills and feels no remorse whatsoever. In fact, is glad and would take vengeance on anyone who would uh, disrespect him. In fact, this is the trajectory we see that is happening. Sin is now filling the world more and more. Where God created this world to be filled with his glory and his image, now it is being filled with sin and violence against one another. And so God comes and he says, I'm going to push the reset button. We get to the story of Noah. And God calls Noah, this, this righteous man amongst everyone else, the most righteous man on earth, and God says to Noah, I want you to build a boat. Right here in the middle of the land, I want you to build this giant boat. Fill it with your family and all the animals, and I want you to stay in there. And God sends a flood and wipes everyone out. Have you ever wondered to yourself, you know, I, I think the problem with all of us, it's actually that we, we have all of these evil systems, right? It's all this peer pressure that we're under. It's all of these corrupt governments and, and, and all of these things that are in the way. If we could just get rid of those, if we could just restart, I'm pretty sure everything would work out. And, and so God does exactly that. He takes the most righteous man on earth and he restarts. And in fact, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, we find a very familiar command. It says, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Right, here is the restart. Here is Noah without any peer pressure at all. He can set the tone. He can go forward without any of the interference of those around him. And God makes, reestablishes this covenant with him. And, and as Noah comes out of the ark, the first thing he does is he plants a vineyard. And for just a moment, it looks like things are going to go well. Right? Noah is, is replanting a garden. It looks like it's going to go well for just a moment. But what happens? Well, Noah makes wine in his vineyard and he gets drunk. His sons find him passed out and naked, and one of his sons mocks his dad for it, and Noah wakes up and he curses his son. They fell quickly. They restarted with, with all the advantages they could, and yet it wasn't enough. But God was patient. And so the story continues, and we follow the, his sons and the nations that come from them, and eventually sin has continued and spiraled once again to the point where they decide, you know what, forget this, let's make our own way back to God. We can make our own paradise here on earth. We'll just bind together, and we can do it. And so they start building a tower, a utopian city where they can reach heaven. And as God comes and he looks down on their little tower and God spreads them then to the ends of the earth, confuses their languages so that they do not try that again. And as we follow the story, we, we finally come to Abraham. 
right? God ends up choosing one of his own, and he says, I am going to now start, and I am going to start working so that this curse of sin is uh, restored. What was lost is restored, and so God makes this new agreement, new covenant with Abraham, right? We spent a number of months looking at this earlier in the year. Genesis 17 says, when Abram was 99 years old and the Lord appeared to him, I am God Almighty, Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. See, God promises Abraham this blessing. And do you hear those echoes of the Garden of Eden? Walk before me. Walk with me and I will multiply you. Right here is God restarting with some of these elements that we had seen at first in paradise, and now it looks, oh, here is Abraham chosen by God. Surely he will be able to do it. God says, I want you to be blameless before me and be a blessing to the nations. But what happens? Actually, Abraham turns out to be a bit of a liar and sells his wife into a harem not once but twice takes on another wife instead of trusting God, has another child which he essentially will disown. Instead of living before God blameless, he fails to uphold God's standard. And we follow the story as God is patient, and we come to his son Isaac, and he is a liar as well. His son Jacob becomes a liar and a thief, and his sons are now murderers, violent men who sell their own brother off into slavery. See, the family as a whole is dysfunctional. They're problematic all the way through. Surely this can't be. Yet God is patient with them, gives them a place in Egypt, and they grow as this nation into the nation of Israel where they are then enslaved. They're enslaved in Egypt until God comes and he brings a man by the name of Moses, and God says, I am going to take you out of here. I'm going to give you a new land, and I will dwell with you. We will have peace together. I shall be your God. You shall be my people. And it sounds like, again, we get this restart. We get this glimpse of what Eden could be like. And you might say, well, okay, here's the problem. See, the problem with with Noah and with Abraham, they didn't know exactly what they should do. Maybe maybe if God just gave them some guidelines, surely they would be able to do it, right? All they need is God to set the standards, set the rules, tell them explicitly, here's what to do. Maybe then it will be okay. And so God comes and he makes a covenant with the nation of Israel. Exodus 19, God says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. See, that's what the nation of Israel was to be. It was to be a holy nation devoted unto God exclusively. And God gives them these rules and he brings them into a new land for them to have. And you'd think everything's going to go well, but we come to the book of Judges. 
And we find this cycle of sin is just repeating itself over and over and over again. The people sin against God. God sends a nation against them. They repent. They cry out to God for mercy. And God brings a deliverer only for this cycle to repeat again and again and again and even get worse as it does. Finally, the nation says, we're, we're tired of just following God. Maybe if we had a king, if we had a leader, then we could do it. And so Saul comes into the picture. And Saul starts off, and he looks really good. He looks like he's the right guy for the job, but we find out so quickly that he's far more <laughs> caring about his own wealth, his own status than anything else. He's a selfish and violent man, and he quickly falls. And so God calls then a new king, right? Surely the issue is that they didn't have the right leader. If they could just get the right leader in power, then everything would be good. And so David comes in. He's a man after God's own heart. He's a man of faith, a man of courage. Surely this is the one. And God comes and he makes a covenant with David, an agreement with him. 2 Samuel chapter 7 says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. See, once again, we have God coming down, making a promise, and yet once again, we find the human partner in this agreement failing. David sins with Bathsheba, lusts after her, commits adultery, murders her husband. He was a man still given to pride and his own accomplishments as he takes a census he should not have, and God judges him for his sins. And yet in the line of kings that follow him, no one does better. His, his son Solomon, he builds the temple. He asks God for wisdom. Surely this is a guy who, who's got it together. Maybe he can lead us right. And in fact, he leads the people of Israel into the greatest era of prosperity. They are wealthier than, than they've ever been. Yet he distracts himself, he marries hundreds of women, becomes consumed with his wealth and stops following after God. He too falls. Rehoboam, his son, he does even worse. He gets onto the throne and he's barely there before he causes a civil war in the nation that separates now the north in Israel and the south in Judah and they will never come together again. This holy nation, this people of God's possession, can't even live with themselves, let alone put him on display. Each king following, claiming to follow God, yet often and er, were failing still. Idolatry would continue in the land. King Joash, who, who repairs the temple, who rediscovers the law and leads Israel to follow it, yet he kills a prophet and ignores him. King Uzziah, who seeks to follow after God and for the first half of his life seems to do it well, yet gets so prideful in his accomplishments that God strikes him with leprosy. King Hezekiah, who prayed to God for deliverance from the Assyrians and trusted in God, yet at the end of his life, what happens? 
Oh, he trusts in his own gold, his own resources more than God. God would send prophet after prophet after prophet to warn them, to warn them about following all of these other gods, to warn them about uh, the violence that was part of their nation, about not caring for the poor, about abusing those who are weak, and yet they fail to listen. God would allow Israel to be destroyed by Assyria, wiped completely off the map. Judah would last a few years longer, yet they would be carried off into exile in Babylon for 70 years. And even when they do return to the land, they don't find a garden paradise. They find a desolated land devoid of God. See, the story of fallen man is one that happens over and over and over again. God is patient with his people, and yet they fail to meet what God calls them to do. And you can't even say God wasn't patient because he spent hundreds of years dealing with this people, giving them chances, giving them his laws, his prophets, all of these things, these warnings, and yet that pattern dominates. It's the sinful rebellion against God. The consequences of sin being played out over and over again. It's life outside of the Garden of Eden. So what do we do with this story? What do we do with this story that God tells us? Right, essentially what we just walked through was all of the Old Testament. There's the story. How do we respond to something like that? Why did God tell us all of this? Why did God give us this story? Well, I think this is part of the answer. We need to recognize our great need. The need that dominates Scripture from chapter 3 onwards is the need to deal with our sin. It's to deal with the curse and the wrath of God that is coming against us. And I think the reason God gives us this story is because we are so inclined not to see it. We are so reticent to actually say the problem might be with us. See, we act like Adam We look around and we blame everything and everyone else except ourselves. We blame our our parents, our circumstances. We blame our upbringing. We blame our culture. We blame the context of what was happening. We can blame all these other things, and yet what we see here time and time again is that it doesn't matter the context. It doesn't matter the culture. It doesn't matter what your parents were like. The pattern of sin continues. But the problem might not be out there, the problem might be in here. See, Paul would summarize this in Romans chapter 3, speaking of the entire human race. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. See, it's what we still see around us, isn't it? 
We see lies and deceit, bitterness, cursing, misery, and ruin. And if we're honest, we see it in our lives as well. See, the truth is, this is a story not about a different time, a different people in a different place. It's a story about us. It's a story that actually turns around and shows us what we are like that turns the mirror back on ourselves and shows us the patterns that are still there in us. It's a story that shows us our need, and it's a story that shows us the cost. See, Adam and Eve were removed from that intimate presence with God. They were told the punishment for sin is death, and not just the physical death that would, uh, they would experience, but the spiritual death of being cut off, punished by an infinite God. See, the curse of sin isn't about sweat and pain and toil, though those are reminders of it. See, the brokenness of this world is to reflect the brokenness between us and God. The curse is that God would judge us for our sins, and we are condemned. Every one of us is guilty. No matter how many chances God would give his people, they would still fail. The truth is, no matter how many chances God gives us, we still fail. Not one of the people we've talked about has ever measured up. The sin of Adam has condemned the human race. Adam fell, Noah fell, Abraham fell, Moses fell, David fell. Everyone has failed God's call. And so God tells us this story because we have a desperate need of someone who can deal with our sin. God tells us this story because we need to realize what our great need is. We need a Savior. We need someone who will actually deal with this problem that we have. And see, until we recognize that fact, we can't keep going in the story. We can't keep going until we've come to the place that says, I can't do this. I can't do it on my own. I have offended a holy God. I am under his judgment. I am helpless before it. God have mercy on me, a sinner. See, that's why God told us this story. But I think that's not the whole reason. It's not just to say, or not just to prove how helpless we are. No, in fact, God tells us this story because there is someone greater coming. Galatians chapter 3 asks the question, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. See, this story is not just about fallen man. It is about the faithfulness of God. It's about someone greater who was yet to come. It was the story about an offspring who would come from Eve, who would crush the head of the serpent, 
who would come and who would bless all the nations, who would spread and fill the earth with the glory of God, who would be a royal priest to his people, who would sit on the throne of David forever. See, if we miss that, we've missed everything. If we think that all we need to do is be a slightly better Abraham, we don't understand the story. What we need is someone greater who is yet to come. The story isn't over. And that's the good news. The story doesn't end there. But for this morning, we are going to pause here. We're going to pause here in the fall, in sin, because actually what we need to do before we get to next week, and we talk about redemption, we talk about restoration, before we get there, we need to deal with this need. We have to deal with our own sin. So let me close with the words of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the final prophet in the Old Testament, and he came and he preached one message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn away from your sin. Confess your sin before God. Turn away from it. No longer follow in your sins. Instead, turn towards God and follow after him with all of your heart. Seek after him. Trust in his patient mercy that he has shown for generation after generation. Our God is faithful. Our God is merciful. Would we trust in him? Turn away from our sins and repent. So this morning as we close, I'll invite the worship team to come forward. And and as they do, I want to call you. Would you take some time, even now, just in the quietness of your own heart, examine your your life and and think through what are the things that, that you need to repent before God? Where are those patterns of sin that have so infected and destroyed your life? Would you turn away from them? Would you turn towards God? Because the truth is, someone greater has come. And this morning, we don't have to pretend like we don't know the end of the story. So, Viviane, as as you lead us here this morning, we get to sing the end of the story. We get to sing together what it is that Jesus has done. So, would you bow your heads and let's pray. Father, we are so thankful Lord, that you are faithful to your promises, that that you are patient with us. Father, that that you are merciful towards us. Lord, we, we have not deserved it. We have not earned anything of your favor. In fact, we are rebels who have gone against you, who have sinned against your glory. Father, we confess we have not lived up to what you have called us to do what you have created us to do. Lord, we are not blameless before you. Father, we repent of our sins. We confess them before you, and we turn to you for mercy and grace and forgiveness. Father, we ask these things in your name. Amen.